Welcome to The Destinationists, the show for the modern travel marketer. I'm Andres Lopez Varela. And I'm Lauren Quaintance. Coming up in this episode... Who the hell makes a five-day ad? It might seem like a crazy idea, but the South Australian Tourism Commission has done just that, and they have had excellent success with it. We're going to chat to them about the very specific insight and structure that went into making such a large piece of content and why it works so well. In Trend Monitor, we're going to examine the results of a new study from Influencer DB about the apparent drop in engagement on Instagram for influencers and also why the travel industry is not using influencers as much as they should. And finally, in campaign news, we're going to review new work from JetBlue and what it means to actually be better than just all right as an airline, and does it actually even work? All that coming up in this episode of The Destinationists, starting now. Now, there's not many marketers that can say they've made a five-day ad. In fact, many marketers would probably try to make the shortest ad possible. Um, But actually, the South Australian Tourism Commission did just that. They created a five-day, 120-hour ad for their State of Wonder campaign. And this um, rolling piece of epic video content has actually delivered really fantastic results. It seems like a very kind of strange concept, a very sort of absurd way of approaching the same challenge that many destination marketers have. But as Brent Hill, the executive director of marketing at the South Australian Tourism Commission will uh, tell us today, there's very, very specific reasons as to why they did it this way. And also there's a very specific structure in the content to show the right experiences and destinations to the right people at the right time, not just around Australia, but actually around the world. And the outcome has been really, really fascinating. Brent joins us now to chat through the creative and insights of this campaign. Brent, thanks for joining us on the show. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. Let's kick off chatting about the State of Wonder uh, campaign with the consumer insight. What was kind of the consumer insight at the center of, uh, of this journey that set you down the path to this five-day ad concept for State of Wonder? Basically, where it came from was that we we understood that um, you know we, we're a smaller market. Um, we we have a boutique uh, brand here in South Australia, um, so people didn't know too much about us. Um, but what you know what they'd seen, they they really liked. So one of the things that we sort of sat down with and said, well, you know, typically when you do you know a thirty second ad or something like that, um, you you have a whole bunch of match cuts that give you a, a really you know, quick overview of what um, the state looks like. And so we're looking at it saying, well, how do we actually get people to see more of South Australia than just a 30-second, you know, fully airbrushed, um, optimum condition type type scenario? So that's when we sort of um, sat down and went, um, what about if we just left the camera rolling when we go and shoot these ads? Because normally when we go and shoot the ads, um, you know, it, it can you can shoot you know many hours and then cut it all down to that 30 second ad. So we're like, what about if we actually left the camera running? So um, we wanted to the consumer to be able to see really authentically what it was like to travel around South Australia, uh, and we also wanted to um, see if we could increase the amount of time that they spent viewing South Australia. That sort of uh, leads nicely into our next question. How did you use how do you use a platform like this to sort of redefine or kind of like you know update the identity of South Australia 
as a destination, particularly for domestic travellers, because we all know that, um, you know, domestic travellers, particularly in Australia, have a very sort of specific perception of cities, destinations, states. How do you use this platform to kind of like, you know, um, spark a different perception of the state? Yeah, exactly. I, I mean, it's one of those amazing things where, um, as with as with lots of places in Australia, we, we live in a very beautiful country, but... Um, South Australia is not a place where you necessarily travel to um, many times a year for, for example, like business and, and, and so on. You might travel, you know, once once a year or something like that. So people's um, perceptions and views of South Australia could often be quite outdated um, or they've heard from, from somebody else that, that had been here perhaps, you know, 10 years ago. So from that perspective, we really wanted to update um, people's exposure of South Australia. So, you know, as I was explaining um in 30 seconds, people sort of go, oh, yeah, it's beautiful, but Australia is beautiful. Um, whereas doing something like a 120-hour um, piece, we were able to really sort of break down um, South Australia into some of the regions like Kangaroo Island and Air Peninsula and, and the city itself. Um, and all of a sudden, people could sort of say, hey, this is a really authentic place. This is not something where, um, because you're not cutting, um, you couldn't edit it. So it was, it was very real. And so people were saying, well, hang on, I, I really want that real Australian journey mm, again. Yeah. I, I want to feel like um, I want to do something which is really authentic and get back to, you know, nature and escape and so on. And, and, and that was the feedback that came through really loud and clear, which was fantastic after people had seen it, was saying, you know, I never realised the depth and diversity of, of, of the state. I mean, it is, it is a big state. Mm. So it's a completely new concept, really, the idea of a five-day ad, you know, say getting away from yeah. the 30-second TVC. So therefore, how did you put metrics um, in place? You know, what were the, the sort of metrics that you were looking to um, affect and change, you know, um, with the campaign? It's funny because a lot of people um, ask the question and said, oh, you know, who's going to watch 120 hours? Now, clearly no one, not even us. <laughs> um, and, and that wasn't what it was about at all um what what we looked at is um a key metric for us was view time we wanted view time to lift above that 30 second you know typical ad um and so when mm-hmm. we looked at it at the end it was up around seven and a half minutes so that was really exciting for us the amount yeah. of people that um mm-hmm. dropped in and out and and over the five days would sort of you know take a look at it when it was you know on our peninsula or take a look when it was on flinders ranges or you know when we we're in the chopper you know traveling over the mclaren vale area you know that drop in and have a look at that and i think in that sense that was that was the really key thing for us um from a metric perspective but then what was um you know everything that we do is is geared around driving leads for operators so um the really interesting thing was because a lot of it was housed on digital um platforms we could actually measure really reliably you know how many people were then going to look at our website southstray.com and then going off to look at operators and making bookings and and that was the piece that was really impressive we had record numbers of traffic into our um, digital ecosystems and our operators um, you know got a ton of bookings which is you know, super exciting because we, we don't sell airline tickets or hotel rooms. Um, what we do is act as essentially a portal and, and take people through directly to the operator. So that was really exciting. And, and, you know, seeing people going out into these regions of South Australia that perhaps had never been before, um, it was pretty immensely satisfying. So then in the unscripted nature of it, I mean, you talked about that. Um, I, mean, I mean, I was interested to see that you even sort of included, you know, bloopers in the in the roundup. Um, yeah. you know, how, how critical was that to sort of establishing, you know, the identity of South Australia and South Australians, you know, that kind of authenticity that you're talking about? It was incredibly important to us. And, and, um, and obviously we understood how big a challenge that was. And, 
you know, sometimes it, it was incredibly logistically difficult um, to, mm. to plan all of that through. We had, you know, three full camera crews that would sort of roll one after the other um, and sort of batten past, if you like. Um, and, and so we were sort of madly going in advance and so on to try and try to try and make it all happen. But the, the really, really key thing was, you know, whatever was going to play out in front of the camera, we'd roll with it. So we, so we, you know, we had the typical challenges that a tourist has. Um, and that kind of thing was really important. What was also beautiful was just these magical moments that, that happen and that happen when you're a tourist. And, and, you know, these days people, you know, capture on Instagram and share on stories and those kinds of things. And, that, that was kind of what we really wanted to do. We really wanted to get that real authentic experience of just rocking up in the moment, seeing this amazing nature or experiencing some uh, incredible tourism experience um, and then sharing it with everybody. But, of course, um, you know, it was it was definitely fly by the city pants at times. Um, the point you make about the, you know, the authenticity, I guess, uh, or, or the, uh, the sort of, you know, unvarnishedness um, of this concept in particular of, of South Australians, of the locals, what do you see as as the sort of um, the role of, of profiling locals in destination marketing? Because we speak to a lot of destination marketers who really see this as a differentiator in, in inverted commas for their destination. And it kind of strikes me that um, increasingly it's not becoming a differentiator. It's like come for the locals, you know, they're the ones who make the destination. So, you know, particularly yeah. when, you're, when you've got a five-day ad, how do you sort of stop that from being um, like, you know, naff or, or tokenistic or, or sort of superficial? How do you actually demonstrate um, differentiation for a destination through locals without just saying, oh, hey, yeah. it's about the locals? Yeah, look, I, I think, again, I think the thing there is um, that's something that we uh, really pride ourselves on here in, in uh, SA is that, um, you know, we, we don't see as many numbers um, as the bigger markets like Sydney and Melbourne. So, what you do get, though, is you, you do get, um, you know, it's slightly less polished, but it, but it's more real and more engaging. So you, you are more likely to, to meet the winemaker when you go down to the cellar door, who probably will say, you know, come around the back and have a look what we're doing. Mm. From that perspective, I think that was the real key for us. We, we didn't, we made a point of not briefing in the operators, you know, this is what we want you to say or, or anything. We just, we just wanted to, to film it and see what happens. And but some of that meant that we had to actually bleep out a few bits and pieces here and there because, you know, colourful language and so on. But um, we also got some absolute gems. Um, and again, you know, we, we had to stay true to this is what happens when you're a tourist. So, you know, if you go to Maggie Beer's place, you might bump into Maggie Beer and she'll probably tell you a bit of a story about, um, you know, how she got to, to where she was. And we were able to capture that. So mm. that kind of thing, I think, is super important, particularly for internationals. I mean, international people want to experience not only an Australian way of life, but Australians. You know, they want to get a handle on, hey, what's it like to live like a local? And did that make it easier in terms of the talent? Because I presume that the nature of this, you know, that it weren't sort of, they didn't have the sense that they had this performance to give, that it was more relaxed in terms yeah. of the shooting. Did that help? Yeah, it, like it, look, it did in some ways. In terms of, we just sort of said, just be yourself and do and do your thing. But as you can imagine, you know, when when you rock up with a camera crew and so on, and and sort of shove a microphone um, around people, they can get a bit nervous if, if they've never never done this kind of thing before. So mm. it did make for some interesting filming. But again, <laughs> um, I, I just loved what came out because it was um, it was really pure. Uh, it was just people talking from the heart. They, they understood the concept of what we were trying to do and they got on board. I mean, you know, the whole state, we, we were just wrapped with how people 
um, responded and yeah, it was it was really special and you, and you can see that you know coming out in in a lot of the filming. So let's talk a little bit more about those um, personalities that you included, uh, the Maggie Beers of of the world, so to speak. Um, that was a big part of anchoring this content of sort of obviously adding variety and depth and, and, you know, personality to it. So why did that matter so much that those high profile personalities were kind of integrated as part of the broader story of those five days? I think the, the really key thing for us is that, you know, of course we work with large numbers of, um, you know, influencers and, and so on over, over the year. But for this part, it was really important for us that, you know, we engaged with people to tell our story who were um, South, passionate South Australians who also have, have moved into a, a broader national consciousness, and mm. so in that respect, um, when we reached out to them, we, you know, we didn't have an enormous budget, um, but pretty much everybody came on board for either, you know, nothing or, or, or very low, you know, just cover my cost type thing. So, you know, we had um, obviously Maggie um, and Ellie Beer um, from the Brotha. We had um, Lachlan Colwell, who was um, who's the head chef at Hentley Farm. Mm. Um, even people like um, Kyle Chalmers, who's you know Olympic gold medalist, and he comes from Port Lincoln. And when we told him, hey, we'll, we'll take him up to Port Lincoln so he can swim a few laps in his old you know childhood sort of swimming area, he you know he was like, yeah, like totally get me back there. So that that kind of thing was was great. But it was also there was so obviously there was people that Australians would recognise, but there was a ton of you know winemakers, gin distillers, yeah. Um, yeah. food producers, market stall holders, all of these kind of guys as well that maybe people from Adelaide might recognise, um, or that if somebody from Sydney has drunk, um, you know, Adelaide Hills Distillery gin, um, they might recognise the gin, but then they all of a sudden see, you know, Sasha LaForger and Toby Klein who actually make that gin. And that, that's the kind of really cool thing as well, is like that real authenticity of, you know, this is not manufactured somewhere else. This is this is made here in Adelaide. This is something we're really passionate about and you've got to come down and see it. So um, it did, you know, it gave us, um, that extra level of consciousness in the public, like we we um, we also got people like Eddie Betts and Gavin Wanganeen involved. I mean, both of those guys really passionate, you know, Aboriginal guys who um, you know grew up on the west coast of South Australia, um, jumped at the chance um, to to get involved, and that's that's you know super special. I mean, we had those guys up on the top of Adelaide Oval, you know, looking looking out at you know Gavin's stand. I mean, he has a stand named after him, and to have a guy like that. And, and he's like, no, nah, I'm happy to do this because I just love SA and I want more people to come. Some of those personalities would have had sizable audiences of their own. How did you go about leveraging those audiences to sort of amplify the content you were creating? Yeah, I think that was the thing. We um, we cut down a lot of the pieces um, and, and sent them around to, to everybody who was involved so that they could, they could share. But also what was really cool is we'd give people a bit of a heads up and say, you know, hey, you know, tomorrow, because obviously it was screening for the whole day we'd say hey tomorrow we're coming to your restaurant or your region or we're in your chopper or you know we're driving in the car with you and they would share it with their audience and say hey you know jump on and have a look at the stream you know i come on you know at from seven o'clock to eight o'clock or something um and that was really cool as well like as you can imagine with 120 hours we had uh, a bit of downtime as well like mm. you know we had bus rides and car rides and stuff we had to go from one place to the other which of course we knew we we're going to be you know just a standard boring road trip kind of scenario that, that happens. But what we did is we'd, we'd throw people in the car. So every so often um, the camera, you know, guys would start talking to 
you know, an artist or a musician or a chef or something other that we stuck in a car and that just, you know, shared their journey. And, you know, th- some of that stuff was really fascinating. You mentioned that you sort of created a lot of more digestible, um, you know, easy to, to sort of shorter formats for those um for those people and, and you know for for your other channels, yeah. Can you highlight some of those uh, some of those formats and the decisions you made and why you made to kind of you know create those particular formats that sort of you know acted yeah. as as trailers or previews as kind of you know synopses almost really for the whole thing. Exactly. I mean that, that that's totally right because again we knew that that um, raw 120 hours um, people there's no way that people are going to watch um, all of that or even. Um, you know, big chunks of it. So what what we needed to do, if, if exactly that word that you said, like the trailers. So what we would do is we'd put out a whole bunch of um, shorter, digestible, almost trailers and say, you know, here's a selection of what's going to happen today. Um, you know, take take a look at the at the feed. But if you just want to um, see, you know, a section, then then go take a look. And we'd put that out via Instagram, Facebook, etc. Um, about 10 times through the campaign, we also ran Facebook Live. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, we knew, for example, we were swimming with sea lions. Um, so, you know, we, we made sure that the camera was on, running, and we ran Facebook Live um, when the guys, you know, went, went to swim with sea lions and, and people got to really experience that and comment and ask all the questions about it and our team were on board to, to respond. Um, we used YouTube as well. We, so we had a whole bunch of little pieces in YouTube, which were great. And the other thing that was great, we worked with a lot of media um, in really effective ways. So our outdoor partners came on board and we had some digital um, outdoor around Australia that were actually tuned into the feed at certain times. So we'd sort of tell them, hey, you know, cut across to the feed. So if you're waiting for your train at Wynyard in Sydney um, and looking at a cross track, it would cut all of a sudden to... Um, a live cross and you'd, you'd actually be yeah, swimming the sea lines or you know, watching uh, gin being made in a distillery um, mm. and it was really cool it was that, that piece of you know, being able to show people what we were doing across so many different formats and kept driving it back to that main feed that ended up is, you know, that's how we got up to the sort of 14 million view number the combination then of that sort of live element and recaps or sort of you know time yeah. you know on demand viewing yeah. if you like was uh, was a good combination obviously to kind of get that get that um, that large number of, of views. Uh, I want to ask you about the international audience versus the domestic audience. How did you kind of prioritize the experiences, the locations, the things you wanted to show for? Um, domestic versus international, like how much of a consideration was that? And if you did, you know, what's a good example of how you kind of time something for for an international audience? Yeah, it's a great point. Um, so to, to use a, a good example of that, um, you know, things like wildlife, Australian wildlife, obviously for a domestic audience, you know, it's not a huge driver. Um, ironically, of course, mm. you know, it's not a huge driver, but then when people actually get a get up close and personal with a koala, no matter if you've seen them 10 times before, people still sort of <laughs> squeal and, and lose their minds, yeah. uh, which is which is great. But, um, yeah, we knew we knew that an international audience was, was obviously going to be looking for things like wildlife. So we did a marsupial um, nocturnal tour. Um, so that, that actually happened literally live at around about, you know, 12, 1 a.m. in the morning on Kangaroo Island, but that was going live across the U.S. and the U.K. Yeah. Um, so the guys were... Walking around KI with these, you know, um, uh, t- modified torches, um, and you know, seeing wallabies and echidnas and koalas and all that kind of stuff, and we were getting, you know, a lot of really good feedback um, from the international audience. So that kind of thing was cool. Um, one of the other things we did 
uh, on one night was um, we actually did a, literally uh, like a night at the museum. We we got access to the art gallery of South Australia um, at 3 a.m. in the morning, um, and we kept all the lights off and did a, a torchlight tour um, through there, which was just awesome. It just looked amazing and. And again, same thing. That was going live into Asia and um, mm. US and UK, and and we were putting out, um, you know, on our socials and so on over in those markets, and saying, you know, jump in and take a look at, you know, the contemporary art of of Adelaide, and, you know, I think that kind of stuff um, worked really well. And of course, you know, the other benefit of all of that was, you know, we'd shot all this footage, and we were able to keep repurposing it, repackaging it, and we've done that now for. Um, you know, the eight months that, that have followed and, and kept putting it out into those markets. So it has been a little while. I mean, you just said it's been um, eight months since the campaign wrapped. I mean, with the sort of benefit of reflection, um, you know, what are some of the results of the campaign that maybe were unexpected outcomes? Um, I mean, you've had some great sort of headline figures, but were there any things that perhaps you didn't expect in terms of the outcomes and, and you know, the metrics that you've managed to move? I think, um, yeah, we obviously expected things like web traffic and so on to... to um, get up. I think that was um, expected, and and we were really pleased. Um, you know, the the interstate numbers were up 19%. Um, probably one that was unexpected was how much South Australians got into it. Um, so our South Australian traffic traffic actually went up by 41% um, on the same period last year, mm-hmm. which is really exciting. I would say the other thing that that I found amazing was the average view time, I thought that we might get at best, you know, a couple of minutes. So to see it end up at 7.7 minutes as average view time was pretty awesome. Um, And probably the other thing was how successful Facebook Live was. It was an area we hadn't really, you know, played in too much. Um, So we actually ran 10 of those um, and we had 113,000 people um, jump in and, and, and take a look. And a heap of comments and engagements and whatever. So we actually learned a lot through this as well. We, we, we found out, you know, what really moved the needle for certain markets and certain people. Um, and then the great thing was our, our partners. I mean, that, that was really exciting that, you know, for example, we, we ran a few flight specials and so on, you know, immediately after. And then the amount of people that literally just saw it and went, okay, done, I'm coming. Mm. Um, and, and came down, I mean, to, to have your airline partners have a 9% growth of flights into Adelaide, that that was exceptional. So, you know, w- would I do it again? Um, probably not. I think it's a one one only special thing. Uh, I think you have to keep moving the needle, but I, I think it's something we're always going to look back really fondly on because it was uh, it was exceptional. It, it's also built um, a bit of a brand for South Australia. I mean, people are expecting us to sort of do things that move the needle now, which is great. That's yeah. a good challenge for the team. Um, but it really put us on the map. Fantastic. The last question, which we generally ask all, all our guests, is uh, what lesson, what one kind of major lesson would you share with other destination marketers who are, um, you know, maybe not attempting a, f- a five-day ad, but, uh, you know, <laughs> trying something that's outside of their comfort zone, uh, a little bit risky and different um, to, to kind of, you know, redefine, reshape the identity of their destination. What's that one lesson that you might share with them? Yeah, I, look, I, I think it is about that, you know, that being bold, I think that as a tourism industry, we've got an obligation um, to be more real um, because I think one of the things that, that has occurred with sort of the Instagram generation is that people get the perfect shot. Um, but, you know, you understand that, hey, around that and behind that is a lot of, you know, chaos and so on. Like people will get, 
you know, the shot of the Leaning Tower of Pisa or whatever, but they won't show you that there's actually 200,000 people doing the same thing and it's crowded and it's hot and all the rest of it. And I think that's the thing. I think the tourism industry, I think we're getting better now at saying, let's be a little bit more real um, and try and, you know, tell people uh, where where the places are to go. Be, be really open and honest. Hey, this place is busy or this place is actually genuinely, um, you know, a handful of people and you're going to have the beach to yourself. And I think that's the thing. I think... Truth in advertising um, and being really bold um, are the key things that we've taken out of it and that I would say to the industry, you know, just keep following that. Fantastic. Brent, thanks for joining us on the show. We appreciate your time and your insights. Thanks, guys. I really appreciate the opportunity. Thanks. That was a really great chat we just had with Brent Hill from South Australia about the state of wonder campaign wasn't he generous with his insights you know in terms of actually revealing some of the metrics and the very specific metrics about the success of the campaign as you know I was a little bit of a skeptic about this one I guess I probably fell in the camp of those people who said who is going to watch you know this this huge a five-day ad a, five ad, a tsunami God, we can't get people to watch footage. a 15 second ad how are we going to get them to watch a five-day and sometimes I guess I my reservation is that sometimes advertising agencies are always looking to do something kind of new and sexy. Yeah. You know, they kind of see the awards and, and that can be a driver. But really talking to Brent, I think I, I saw and started to understand some of the, the real reasons for doing this and the sort of drive to get cut through. And I think when you think about it in the context of the problem, which is about revealing the diversity of South Australia and the diversity of experiences, which is a common problem for a lot of destination marketers, I think it started to make sense. Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, I I, I, I don't think I was as sceptical as you um, were, but I think certainly I was wondering about how, you know, how the hell you kind of targeted this content correctly to the right audience. And I think that, that Brent really made it clear that there was a very deliberate kind of structure to this thing to make sure that the right content got to the right people at the right time and whether that was um you know the the winery experiences the 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 food and wine experiences for australia less so the the nature ones the wildlife ones and you know maybe the opposite for certain overseas markets i think that really lends a lot of credibility to the approach and it also makes it really interesting when you think about when we talk about how destination marketers try to convey a breadth of experience like oh you know a whole country in like a 60 second tvc uh and actually how silly that really that that kind of thing is because how can you adequately do that and in this way it's sort of like more of a library of content that people can reflect back on and, and reference if you like when they're planning a journey planning a trip to australia or to south australia mm. the 60 second tvc is almost the antithesis of authenticity to me because by its nature it is going to be this kind of manufactured kind of montage of images set to music you know kind of cutting quickly between different destinations you know there's such a formula that we've seen so much of and I can see how when this is the problem that you're trying to tackle which is about you know breadth of experience and also wanting to kind of really showcase your locals and their kind of unique um, tone and 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 welcome that they give Mm. visitors how um, do you do that in 60 seconds I think that's a real challenge so in that sense it's been a huge success because the time, I think you can't argue with the time that you've managed to capture people for, if it is in fact seven and a half minutes, I believe yeah. you said, then that's really quite impressive because 
ultimately in our highly distracted world in 2019 the you know the most valuable consumer metric of all is time mm, 100% and i think the really interesting those kind of spots of downtime that you would traditionally have like on a road trip or when you're waiting for something and you know chucking in a lo- local artist or you know speaking to a chef or a winemaker on on part of a road trip really adds a degree of um kind of personability if you like to the experience because it could seem like just otherwise it might just seem like a like a world record attempt of some sort it's like it really doesn't feel very feels very hard to relate to but once you put people in those settings like actually when you are on a road trip with people you know you you, you might listen to the music for a while but then afterwards you're going to start chatting and so one would actually convey that um in this format and actually create that personal connection with a person and experience a place uh, in that more kind of genuine way, in that more sort of real way, as he put it. I liked his point very much about having, you know, uh, not so much a responsibility, but perhaps an opportunity to deliberately strip back the stuff that isn't uh, real, if you like, and really kind of get to the harder stuff in, in destination marketing. I think that's a really, that's a really beneficial learning for everyone. All right, in trend monitor this episode, we want to talk about uh, a new study that analytics firm Influencer DB has um, released uh, and that Mobile Marketer has covered in uh, in some detail. Influencer DB is a, a marketing technology company out of Germany. And um, their study has shown that um, Instagram influencers have seen uh, engagement rates on their content drop. Uh, effectively, they're calling it an all-time low. And it's particularly interesting because of the fact that there are so many influencers in the travel space um, clamoring for you know, partnerships, sponsorships, advertising dollars. Actually, the travel industry is not leveraging uh, influencers as much as other industries. They um, Travel influencers actually have the highest engagement rates, uh, even though they have dropped as well, but the actual travel industry is not using influencers as much as fashion, food, and beauty. So it's a really interesting intersection, and I think the most compelling thing about this research is that the numbers are for engagement are... Um, still quite high in a sense, like the, 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 the engagement rate in the first quarter of this year fell to 2.4% from 4% three years earlier. So it's not terribly low, but it is probably lower than we've been led to believe by influencers, um, you know, some marketing technology companies and certainly agencies and groups that are hawking influencers, particularly in the travel space. It really raises the question, uh, what is the future for influencers in the travel marketing category what do you think well this is a sort of perennial question really isn't it yeah. uh influencers worth it and and we hear this come up over and over and again and and at our agency storiation we are asked this a lot you know you know should we invest um, in influencers and i think that this research is so interesting to see these levels of engagement and it's exactly the kind of information that um, any marketer should be requesting from an influencer that they're working for um you know clearly having this kind these kind of statistics about average engagement rates and and engagement rates over time i think Mm. would be interesting to have i think you know i think probably to put it in the bigger context though overall engagement on Instagram is dropping and has been dropping steadily since 2016 the platform has just become more crowded you know there's just more content whether it's sponsored content or 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 non-sponsored content it is actually becoming more crowded I mean actually organic content is dropping the engagement rates are dropping faster than sponsored content probably because the algorithm prioritizes the sponsored content yeah Yeah. of course 
Of course. So, um, you know, overall, it's just becoming a much more difficult place to, to play in than it was, you know, three or four years ago, which is to be expected. So I guess um, what I found really interesting out of this is actually the kind of the the fact that actually these sort of nano influences, as they're calling them, which yes. are the ones with, I believe, fewer than 10 or th- fewer than 1000 followers actually um, have the highest engagement rate. So it went sort of, you know, influence with with five to 10,000 had, had an engagement rate of 6.3. But those with um, a following of one to 5,000 had the highest rate at 8.8%, yeah. which is really interesting. Yeah. And again, if, you know, you get even bigger, it, it goes even lower. So those kind of niche influencers, those mm-hmm. micro influencers, they're actually performing a lot better on the platform than some of the big names. I think it's an interesting lesson for travel brands in particular, because the uh, temptation is to go for a mass audience generally. We want to, like we see, we think of influencers as a more cost-effective uh, kind of, you know, genuine channel. I'm using air quotes, genuine. Um, but maybe actually they're really, they're really not as effective in that sense. I mean, there's a lot of interesting um, data that we've looked at uh, in, in this segment in past episodes, you know, for things like, um, you know, medical travel or uh, Muslim travel, for example, and, you know, uh, what might be considered niche groups groups simply because they have a particular need or a particular message that needs to be kind of spoken to them in a different way actually maybe that's more of a uh, an impacting way to use influencers rather than thinking broadcast and mainstream so if you have a product and you're trying to attract a particular kind of traveler or you know a new segment or you know stimulate repeat business then maybe it's better to focus your influencer strategy in the travel space on those more niche groups rather than broadcast i think that makes sense and i think the parallel to me is when I was um, editor-in-chief of uh, travel for the Sydney Morning Herald and the Melbourne Age, I always used to think about um, the journalists we use having very specialised skills. I'd always say, it's not a travel writer, it's not a family travel writer, it's a family travel writer that specialises in Europe or a a family travel writer that specialises in camping, you know, that is sort of either geographies or types of trip. And I think that the parallel applies here because, you know, just general travel influencer you know that doesn't that doesn't speak to me in the yes. same way as someone who is kind of of my tribe, um, and so it's looking for those people and matching up their audience with your audience and their sort of niche interests and specific areas of expertise with what you need to speak to your audience about, and it's the work that goes in before um, you engage these people rather than kind of lazily going for the person with the with the biggest following. All right, it's time for campaign news, and this episode we want to talk about the Just All Right Doesn't Fly Here campaign from JetBlue. It's based around a series of, uh, of, of, of ads, films, whatever you want to call them, where the All Right Brothers uh, show you how they made flying terrible, really, how they made the service poor, how they made the check-in experience poor, how they made the in-flight experience poor. Uh, obviously, the All Right Brothers is a, is a play on words, is a pun on the Wright Brothers who invented... Um, you know, airplanes, I guess. Um, and, you know, it's it's like it's it's fun, I guess. But um, we don't really think it's super effective at doing at doing much, do we, Lauren? Well, it, I mean, I mean, effective, I don't know about yet. I mean, obviously, it's a new campaign. Yeah, we will sure. wait and see in terms of success. But just my personal take on it is, I mean, they're clearly trying to address um, a thing that a lot of airlines want to talk about, which is service. Because... Yeah. 
they have, we've talked about this before, they've got no differentiation in terms of their products. So service is a big driver. And every time I've been on the receiving end of briefs from large airlines, it has always been about how do we talk about our service and our mm. people. Um, what I don't, I guess, I guess what I find cringy with this is the sort of, it's it's the way that the ads, which are kind of in the beginning kind of shot in this kind of olden day style with this kind of, you know, kind of, you know, jaunty music. Vaudeville music yeah. and everything, yeah. Um, and you got the kind Pulled of- Pulled by hats. Pulled by hats. Mm. And these sort of, you know, these sort of long suffering um, passengers who are, you know, have no leg room, there's no snacks, there's no entertainment, there's nothing. They're just, you know, um, very grumpy hostesses and nobody answers the phone in the jet blue off, in the, sorry, the right- all right, right brother's, brother's office, yeah. not the jet blue office. But then that's contrasted. It moves very good. at the end of each ad. It sort of it cuts to the modern day. You know, we have this kind of slightly cheesy scene at the end with the jet blue team saying, "Oh, is that how other airlines do it? You know, that's not what we do here." Yeah. And I don't. This to me, it doesn't it feel feels that unnatural, doesn't it? And it's yeah. not really persuasive. I'm just not sure. I mean, it doesn't feel like any real insight around JetBlue itself and their product and service. It feels like. Let's just, you know, do something, yeah. you know, different. So I give them credit for doing that. It's different sure, sure, to a lot yeah. of airline ads. Um, but, you know, what is the real insight about JetBlue and its service? Mm. That that feels kind of like it's just stuck on at the end. It, and it doesn't feel necessarily like it's a, a convincing way of saying that. It's sort of like saying, oh, well, you know, other airlines do bad service. It's like, well, I mean, the reality is that, you probably have good service and bad service as well. Like on certain flights with certain people, the experience will be different. And, and that's why customer service is such a strange differentiate way to try to differentiate. Oh, we've got better customers. So just because we say we do, you know, and our NPS scores are higher, it doesn't necessarily bear out in really uh, meaningful meaningful ways for customers. And so I think that when it comes to airline, I mean, you know, we've spoken many times about airline marketing and, you know, the way they use their content to kind of communicate their differentiators is um, is vastly different. But at the end of the day, they can't any anybody can't really talk about the innovation in their product or the innovation in their approach. Um, and so to kind of say, uh, hey, you should fly with us because we're better than the others is, is kind of a, a bit of a cop-out, really, I think. Yeah, I also just think that it's, it's bad form in general. I mean, I, to sort of, <laughs> yeah. you know, point to your competitor's you know, kind of weaknesses as a way of, and that's that's your sort of whole way of saying we've got strengths. You know, mm. that doesn't that doesn't feel like a, it just feels like a bit of a cop out. The other thing about these ads is that the people don't seem like they're doing anything particularly special or different. And I think that, that like at the end, you know, like no. like one person is just is is greeting a guest nicely at the at the, at the gate lounge. The other one's answering the, other one's the phone. The phone like, nicely. Wow, and wow, the, we answered the phone. Wow. And then the other one's handing a, a bag of chips to a guy on a plane and says, oh, you're welcome. It's, it's sort of like it's not really actually showing how you're doing better than just all right. Uh, and so I think that actually the, the, it, like, the concept is there, but it's not actually demonstrated in like, actually, how do we do that? Right. Like, you know, I think car hire companies sometimes do this better in terms of actually showing the lengths that they go to for customer service uh, in a more sort of, you know, um, emotive, engaging way. Yeah. But, you know, just handing a bag of chips on a plane and turning around to the other flight attendant and going, oh, wow, I mean, the other airlines are worse than this. It's like... 
Yeah, because which, which, which airline was it that that did some ad some years ago where it was you know about someone had left their, something on the plane and they go to these huge lengths to get it back yes. to them and it's in a taxi and it's you know it's it was that Qantas I can't remember maybe but it was you know that was, you it, can't was remember, can you? it was you know it was extraordinary custom service yeah. whereas I feel like to your point absolutely those are hygiene factors I mean your airline should answer the phone when you call them. That's all we've got time for on this episode of The Destinationist. Thanks so much for joining us. Remember to subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, Spotify, anywhere you get your podcasts, really. If you want to find out more, you can always visit the website at thedestinationists.com. Connect with us on LinkedIn or follow us on Twitter. We'd love to hear from you. Oh, and if you're enjoying the show, don't forget to rate and review us. I'm Andres Lopez Varela. And I'm Lauren Quaintance. Join us next time for more insights from top travel marketers from around the globe.